we'll get going. We're, if you all want to turn to Genesis 11. So today we're going to be covering uh, just the kind of the last part of, of the beginning of Genesis or the beginning of, of, of kind of the world uh, before God calls a certain people. And that's what we're going to see in chapter 12. Is, and we're going to take a few weeks off for that. Um, I think uh, the plan is to do Psalms for the month of August here and then get, dive back into Genesis, I think, later. Um, but So here's the last chapter then, or the last part, before we get into the history of Israel specifically. Okay, And um, we're in Genesis 11. We're at the Tower of Babel. And a lot of us know this story. Uh, we learned it as children. And like I've said before when I've been up here, a lot of times we look at those, and, and we see those stories, we, we know them as children, and it just kind of becomes simplistic. We read it and like, okay, there it is. Um, and, you know, it becomes a lot more rich when you start to really, you know, dive deep into it and read what others have written and, and think through these things. And, and once again, here we are in nine, nine verses, which seems like a pretty simple story, but is very deep and it speaks to the fundamental problem <laughs> we all have. Um, so we're going to read Genesis 11, 1 through 9. We're not going to cover all the genealogy before and after that, although I'm, I am going to uh, look at a few verses before in the genealogies, because um, I actually think that's where the story begins. So, all right, let's, let's start here with Genesis 11. Follow along with me. I'm in the ESV version. Now the whole earth had one language and the same words. And as people migrated from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, Come, let us build bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens. And let us make a name for ourselves lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they'll do, and nothing they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. Now, as I, as I read it, I, 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 you know, all those things that I've read on it have... have, have uh, are kind of rushed back in my memory, um, and I'll try not to get you know chase rabbit trails because it's easy to do actually in this in this um, passage. But so I'll try to focus on 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 what we're going through today. But forgive me if I get off on on some of those. But today we're going to be looking at this story and talk about them. And and I cannot help myself. I apologize in three headings. Okay, <laughs> I cannot help myself. Well, we're going to, one, look closer at its historical and textual context and, what, and kind of what that means for us today. Then, two, we're going to look at the specific sin, sins of Babel, and what I, so the heading of that is the sins of Babel and the sin of us all. And then heading three will be God 
will fulfill his purpose of redemption for his glory. All right? So point one then, a look at the kind of the historical context and, and kind of taking it through a little bit um, and walking it through kind of step by step. The story doesn't actually begin in chapter 11. It begins in chapter 9, really, verses 1 through 7. But before we look at that, we are going to go back and read. Um, and since this is the last sermon, like I said, in the series of the introduction of Genesis, let's take a little brief overview on what kind of has led up to this point, Okay. So what do we have? What's the first thing? In the beginning, right? God created and saw that it was good, right? Why was it good? Because God had created it and created it for his glory. Everything he had made gave him glory at that time and found joy and peace in worship, and that's why it was good, right? They were in his glory and living under the complete good reign of the king. Then we, we read of the fall, where Adam and Eve chose themselves over God um, after being tempted by the devil himself, causing pride to enter into mankind, separating by fact, them choosing themselves, separating them from God. They now could do nothing by continually choosing um, themselves over God. Or sorry, they could do nothing now but choose themselves continually. Um, And then we learn in chapter 3, Verse 15 also that this is even, uh, but this even itself is not outside the mysterious sovereignty of God, right? That God had a plan to redeem mankind, the proto evangelicum of 3.15. And if we go on further, we read about and sermonized about Cain and Abel. We read how their sin began to grow even in the first generation after Adam, how Cain did not honor God. He became jealous of Abel, killed him, then denied it at least at first, and then blamed it on God, right? Then, and then he could not take the merciful punishment of God that that he sentenced him to and was unremorseful. And that was all within the first generation of of, of sin. Then we read how Cain left and began his own civilization apart from God and how later Seth then was born and carried on the line of Adam, Yes. And then we kind of have these sons of God and the sons of man for a while. And we read, and we kind of fast forward then through those, through those genealogies, the sons of God and the sons of man. Um, and, and, and through some of the characters, we fast forward in the lineage of Keth and Sa- or, sorry, Cain and Seth. And we arrive at Noah, where we uh, read that sin and the love of man for himself has spun out of control in such a way that God is going to judge man and kind of reset the starting point, right? And that's what we've done the last few weeks. We've read of Noah. So the last few weeks in, we've studied Noah and God's judgment through the flood. And finally, how Noah and his sons begin the work of repopulating the earth at the command of God. And that's kind of where we start. So last week, we read of, of Shem, Japheth, and Ham. And their, um, excuse me. Their significance to the line of Adam, um, from the line of Adam to Shem, to Abraham, Abram, to David, and then to Jesus. We read of Japheth, who simplistically is kind of the father of the Gentiles, and then of Ham, who leads to the cursed enemies of Israel, right? A little simplistic, but that's how it goes. And that is where we enter the story today, with Nimrod. Right? 
in one of the cities he founded, Babel. So let's turn to chapter 9 and read 1 through 7, for this is, kind of, this is really where our story began. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, its blood. And for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast, I will require it. And from man, from his fellow man, I will require a reckoning for the life of man. For whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. And here it is. And you be fruitful and multiply. Increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. Okay? So there's the, he, he, he starts with the command and he ends with the same command. Be fruitful, spread out, multiply, basically subdue the earth, prosper it, and make my glory known in your civilizations. Okay? Well, also, this is, he, he keeps restating this, this command in, in various ways. Um, and then we kind of read of it in chapter 10, um, verses after we start reading through the genealogies. We notice kind of at the end of each of the genealogies of, of the sons, we read these things. It says, from, like, so 10.5 says, From these the coastland peoples, this is from Japheth, uh, spread into their lands. So they spread. They did, the, they did the going out, right? Each with his own language. Listen to that right there. Each with his own language, by their clans, and in their nations. Spreading out, right? Verse 20, after another genealogy, says, These are the sons of Ham, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations. Spreading out, multiplying. And then again in 31, verse 31, it says, These are the sons of Shem, by their clans, their languages, their lands, and their nations, okay? And you're thinking, well, where, where, are, you going? where are you going with this, Andy? Okay, um, but did you catch that when I read it? I, I, hopefully you did, because I just said it like really plainly. Languages. And then we read in verse 11, or chapter 11, verse 1, now the earth, whole earth had one language in the same words. Wait a minute. <laughs> we just read that they had their languages and were spreading out. Okay, so we gotta be careful then, um, that, that we know the, text, the context of this, of this right here, okay? Um, we learn uh, this story, then, is not set chronologically, right? It's, it's kind of a backstory of what happened in chapter 10, right? And it gives us a snapshot, but it doesn't give us a snapshot of every one of them. It gives us a snapshot of, of Han's lineage, all right? And then, so then we have to think, okay, well, why did God put this here? Right? Why did we? Why did he? Put, why did he put this here? Because it, you know, in, in chapter ten, we read it sounds like they're doing what God has asked them to do. Right? He's asked them to do these things: spread and multiply, and, and fill the earth, and be fruitful, and and prosper it. And it sounds like that's what they're doing. And then God's like, boom, here it is. No, maybe not. Maybe there's another story to it. So we're going to look at that a little bit. Um, let's see. Got to get back into my notes. God had commanded them to fill the earth. 
to spread out and fill new lands and, and, and find them and fill them. This is the command. Um, and like I just said, by a cursory reading of 9 and 10, chapters 9 and 10, it appears as if they obey the commands. But here, God interjects in this lineage story, and I think for multiple purposes, to show that God will have his way, whether through obedience or disobedience of man. That's kind of point A, or like A of point one or whatever. Okay, That God will have his way through obedience or disobedience. God commanded them to disperse, fill the earth, and in this way, without the modern conveniences of travel, right, when they do that, it's only natural for them to become more and more distinct, different from one another. God knows this. He has that plan and wants them to do that. Okay, Diversity, right? Differences. He wants that. Gradually and more and more diverse. Subdue and prosper the earth to the glory of God as his image bearers in different ways. He wants that. But some had decided that instead they should be in one place against the command deliberately and build a society that would defy that command and also build a monument to the glory of man, not the glory of God. This story shows us that God will intervene to disrupt the will of man to fulfill his purposes. Sometimes very deliberately. Sometimes he'll work through the disobedience. Sometimes he'll just cut it off, right? God had and has a sovereign plan and will fulfill it, whether through obedience or disobedience. So that's point one, or point A. Um, it shows us how God is in complete control and man is not even close. In fact, I'll, I'm, I'm going to take just a little bit of time here um, <laughs> just to say I was almost laughing when I read it. Um, they said, you know, the man says, let's, let's, let's come build a cities for ourselves and make our names known and not be dispersed. And let us, let's, let's build a tower as a monument to ourselves. We'll build it up to the heavens and get to God and show him we are something. And, and, and if, if you're thinking about it along those lines, and then you read this part here, it kind of makes you chuckle, right? God is like, and it says, and the Lord came down to see the city and the tower. Now, it's not like, this is, the writer writes this, I think, not because God, you know, dwells up there, you know, and he only is up there and he just comes down. It's, it's a way for him, it's a way for you to kind of chuckle and be like, <laughs> you know, God is like squinting and be like, are you building something down there? Okay, you little tiny building. Oh, that's so nice, right? Um, it's a little bit of a joke, right? Like we have this great and, and, and powerful God <laughs> and we have man who thinks he's trying to get to God and, and, and God is just like, you're, it's not even close. Like, you know, I'm going to come down and see what they're doing here. So it's a, a little bit of a, a, a joke. So God shows his complete control, and man is not even close. Yes? Another, another thing I think we see in this story is in 11.6, and it says, And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they all have one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do, and nothing that they propose will now be impossible for them. And so, when you first read that, you think, hmm, sounds like God feels like he's challenged and he has to go, like, you know, make sure that they're not challenging me anymore. Well, God is not threatened, if you, in case you're, you know, thinking about this, God is not threatened by human ingenuity. Yes? He's not threatened by this. Rather, God was wisely, and I, I read this and I thought, ah, this makes sense. God was wisely and mercifully mitigating the threat of human ingenuity to humans. 
okay, and to the rest of creation. Through dispersing the people and thwarting their desires, God acts mercifully to prevent the exponential growth of a united rebellion. Now, let's think about this a little bit. I think, you know, he's done this probably throughout history in different ways, but, but now we can really kind of see, see some of this coming together in the 20th century, if you really think about it, right? He started this early on, and they were going to start doing this early on in, in, in the history of man, but, but, but think about the exponential growth today of technology in the 20th century. Medicine. Very good. Helps heal people. There's also medicine and drugs that kill people. Right? Things that we've gotten together to, to invent can be good and bad. Surgical procedures. Right? That we've gotten together, human ingenuity. Very good. Saves lives. There's also surgical <laughs> procedures that kill the unborn. Right? How about nuclear energy? It's a very good thing. Provides comfort. It's very efficient. Private provides safety. But through the, through the corruption of man, it also has been one of the best ways to destroy and cause suffering amongst humanity. How about ways of communication, right? Sometimes this boggles me how the internet can do so many things. In the 20th century, we started... <laughs> I mean, in, in a sh few short years, we started with, you know, telegraphs and, and primitive phones. And all of a sudden, you know, I can FaceTime my mom from halfway across the world and we can just, you know, be together like that, be together. But think of all the other things that it, uh, it, it, it can cause as far as the corruption of man can do with it, right? I, mean, I even think about social media in this way. <laughs> Um, it's a great thing, but it also is a, is a thing to, to, one, isolate people and, and, um, and really glorify man, <laughs> right? Glorify self. And the last thing I'll just kind of, again, I can get off on rabbit trails in this, but the last thing that, that, that perked my interest, and I've heard it a couple other times before, is, uh, again, human ingenuity, right? God knows, he knows, he, he put that in us to go and prosper and fill the land and multiply and do it for the glory of God. But he also knows that the corruption combined with the ingenuity is, is going to really tank humankind really quickly, right? Well, here's another instance I thought that was interesting. AI, artificial intelligence, right? Right now we have devices of artificial narrow intelligence that they call ANI, but that there are people now who are waving the flag because we're going further and further. If you want to read up on this, it's rather quite interesting. They're waving the red and, <laughs> and yellow flags because as soon as we get to AGI, artificial general intelligence, and then ASI, artificial super intelligence, now we have something that could be very potentially good for humans, but in a corrupt society, very dangerous. So when God came down, and he says in verse 6, he says, and nothing will now be impossible for them to do. Does that start to make a little bit more sense? Not that they, nothing will be impossible for them to do to disrupt me. Nothing will be impossible for them to do to completely corrupt humanity right away and to harm themselves. So what he's doing is coming down 
and <laughs> preventing them from destroying themselves by being together, yes, in one language and in one people. We can also then, to, to not quite get away from this point quite yet, but think about this in your own life, right? I think about this actually, and I, I was thinking, I, th- I think I talked to Sam a little bit about this, or was it last week or the week before, about how he disrupts things in our own lives. Our own wills, our direction that we think we should go, and this is how life should be. And then he says, he puts a roadblock there and says, no, that's not it, right? You need to do this and go that way. And, you know, and so through his mercy, he thwarts our desires sometime. Um, and, and this is one of those things where you can turn back to and be like, okay, you are sovereign. You know all. I don't understand this, but I trust you to do what you're going to do and to be faithful and, and loving. So, um, sum that up. God knows what he's doing and he frustrates the will of man for the good of man. All right? Uh, another reason this could be in here is, is to show that even after the reset of the generations of man because of the exponential growth of evil, pride and sin, here it is again, right? The sin of Adam, the sin of Cain, is still prevalent and growing even after the flood, even after the reset. The seed of sin continues to grow, and this is just right here a picture of it. And lest we forget, okay, so sometimes we might think, well, this is this is this is the corrupt man. This is, you know, this is the sons of Ham. You know, the sons of Shem weren't doing that, the sons of Japheth weren't doing that. Well, remember, Ham is a descendant of righteous Noah, right? Righteous Noah. Uh, and, and, and God had saved Noah because he was righteous in his generation, right? Well, that doesn't mean that he was without sin. Remember this, okay? So Ham's line is Noah's line. Noah, the righteous man of his generation, the separation from God, the pride of self against him is in every person. Noah, Shem, Japheth, Ham, all of them. And it, and it continues forth. But if you dwell on it, you think, I mean, at the time, I think what God is doing, he's putting this here and he's saying, you know, look, you can't save yourself, right? This should cause us to, to exclaim to ourselves, what then can we do? If even after the reset, man is completely corrupt like that, what can we do? God is pointing us to what we can't do and what he does for us, right? And then, finally, while we could come up with like a lot more, and you're probably getting, you're probably saying, let's get on with it, DeBoer. The, the other one we'll focus on leads us to uh, our second point then in, 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 in the sermon today. So through the story, we see the root of rebellion, our sin, evil, and separation from God, and what continues to today in the heart of all. Okay? So, um, I'm going to read verses 3 and 4, and we'll get into the second point, the sins of Babel, the sin of all. It says in in verse 3, And they said to one another, Come, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and bitumen for mortar. Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower with its top in the heavens, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. 
Remember from chapter 9, the peoples were all of one language and one ethnicity. And God's purpose was to create a kaleidoscope of human diversity to magnify the various facets of God's creation. So God said, disperse and spread out throughout the earth. Be fruitful and multiply. So what was the sin of the people of Babel? Well, I think there are many, but the core sin behind the sin is what we want to get to. First, they were to spread out throughout the earth, but against the command, they agreed with one another and spurned one another on to deliberately stay in one place. So defy the, one of the sins is just defying God outright by staying in one place after he said to do something. So was it the city that they were building? Was that the sinful thing? Was it the tower itself? Well, maybe in defiance, maybe that was it. But I would argue more that it was the intention of their hearts. Okay? You see, what follows in the text is what makes the building of the city and the tower a rebellion against God. Are cities inherently evil? Are towers and buildings inherently evil? No. In fact, in Revelation, God describes the great city in which he and we will dwell, right? But it is what follows in the verse. It says, and let us make a name for ourselves, lest we be dispersed over the whole face of the earth. So, this city is first a direct disobedience to God, an overt rebellion, an open defiance of God. God said to disperse. They're building a city for the specific reason not to disperse. Right? This is not even a, we hear you, God, but we think this might be wiser, which is bad enough. But this is a, we hear you, God, and whether it's wiser or not, we don't care, we don't like you, we're going to do the exact opposite of you, what you've asked us to do to show our contempt for you. But on top of that, they're building a tower to show their might. Right? To make a name for ourselves, as they say. To build a monument to their own glory so that they might revere themselves and others might revere them after they're gone. That they might leave a legacy. So, do you see what the sin behind the sins are? If you've been here and heard us preach, you've probably heard it a lot. I dwell on it quite a bit because it's something I work on every day. What was their sin? It's the seed that began with the very first sin and continues in every one of us today. This is why we did a little bit of that review at the beginning. right? It was and continues to be what separates us from God. In a word, pride. right? Me. My wants over yours. My good over the good of others. My glory over over the glory of God. You see, this is what the people of Babel were doing. The seed handed down to them was the seed of pride. The sin of Adam and the sin of Satan. Pride. To make myself God. Why did they build a city? For security apart from God. Why did they build a tower? To challenge God. To go to the Most High on their own. To build a monument to their own glory. To create a kingdom unto themselves, to rule a kingdom apart from God. In church, may we be warned in this, in building our own kingdoms. 
as Matthew Henry says, it's God's prerogative to be universal monarch, Lord of all, and King of kings. The man that aims at it offers to step into the throne of God who will not give his glory to another. May that be something we reflect on as we continue to go through this sermon. He will not give his throne to another. It is his kingdom. So when we read this story, you have to ask ourselves, why did God put it here, right? Is it to learn how there became different languages and nations and ethnicities? That's one reason. Is it so that I can see the folly of the nation that was to become the enemy of Israel, Babylon? That's another reason. Is it so that I can, that I might see the folly of disobeying God? Absolutely. Is it so that I might make a reminder to myself not to build a tower to reach the heaven to God in the sky? Obviously, right? Silly. But I think there's a fundamental aspect to this story that we must reflect on daily for the rest of our lives. Which we're going to get to in here in just a little bit. But remember, we, we, we said the fundamental sin, the sin behind all the sins is pride, right? Me, my once over yours, my good over yours, my glory over yours, my glory over God. This is true of every one of us. The sin of Adam, the sin of Cain, the sin before the flood, the sin after the flood, the sin of Babel, the sin behind the sins. And our core problem today, the thing that separates us from God and church, what Christ came to die for in our place. The inescapable desire for me to serve myself, to comfort myself. You see, while this passage is a focused story on one people who can be villainized as, and truly are, enemies of God and God's people, we must remember that what is true of them is true of us. Sin reigns in their hearts, but sin reigned in ours. We too were like those, enemies of God's and God's people. Enemies of God and God's people. We're no better, right? And Paul says in Romans 3.23, for all, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And he says in his letter to the Ephesians, as for you, you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. And you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. I want us to reflect on this and focus on this and remember this to humble us. For even in our salvation, which was nothing we did, pride can sneak in. We can villainize those who are not of the kingdom with the wrong heart. Right? Yes, if we love God, we will hate all that are opposed to him, but we were opposed to him too. This should cause us to glorify him and show mercy to others. Because through God's mercy, we are here. That's astounding. 
It's marvelous. And if, that doesn't, if, you, if you think about that and you're not thinking, that's miraculous. Me, me, a child of God, it's amazing. You don't think that. I would challenge you to reflect on, 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 on the gospel and what truly, what, what, what truly God has done for you. Paul goes on in Ephesians right after I stopped there, like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. He says, but because of his great love for us, God, who's rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Grace. Saved. Because of God, we are now free from living for ourselves. We are now free from serving ourselves to the glory of ourselves, which leads to death. And we are free to glorify and serve the one who gives life. Praise him for his love and mercy to the ones who were his enemies. But church, remember I said a few minutes ago that there's still one fundamental aspect of this story that we need to reflect on every day for the rest of our lives. The fact that we are saved by God's mercy and loving kindness from the judgment of our rebellion and sin and evil against him does not mean that we are yet perfect. We are still being sanctified, being made perfect. So if you're like me, you continue to struggle with the fundamental sin of pride, of me serving. So church, this is the question I want us to ask ourselves How are we building our own kingdoms? How are we building our own cities, our own towers, to our own glory? You might say, "Uh, Annie, I'm not building any monuments to myself. I don't know what you're talking about. Well, let me give you some examples from my own life. My own life of kingdom building. Ones I've struggled with and I still struggle with. Questions and desires I may not have asked outright, maybe not, not even in my, but I know they're there in the back of my mind. I find them to be there still. Have you heard something like this, maybe? I think, maybe in my heart of hearts, maybe I should go over there and meet that person. That they might be useful. <laughs> they might be useful to me to have them as an acquaintance and as a friend should I need something. How about this? I'm going to go buy this thing or do, or do that thing for, for this person or that organization so that they'll think I'm gracious and kind. It'll be my legacy. And who knows? Maybe they'll reward me for being kind or give something to me in return. It doesn't sound evil at first, maybe, but are you sure building my kingdom? How about this? Look at that person. They don't deserve that. (laughs) I would do better. I deserve that. How about this? Why am I going through this? It's not fair. I don't deserve this. I deserve better. How about this? I've worked hard for this. 
It's mine. I earned it. I'll do with it what I please. I think those things, folks. Or I've thought that maybe not explicitly, but I know they're there. I know they're motivations for me sometimes. And there's other examples of those, I'm sure, and you know in your own life if you've reflected on it. Well, how is this kingdom building? Well, in the end, all of my desires are for my own city, my own comfort. All of these things I just said are for my safety, my comfort, my wants, my good. They're my own tower, my glory. Church, I ask you then, in your daily lives, while the Spirit sanctifies us and makes us more like Christ, what are you doing to build your kingdom? <laughs> in what ways does pride creep into your life? You must reflect on and ask the Spirit to reveal these things to you because sometimes you don't even know it. And, I, and he reveals it to me sometimes later and I, I weep. Ask him to reveal these things and then pray for, this, for his help to put to death the desires of the flesh. And we must help each other with this, church. We, we must help each other. And we must spurn each other on to good works for the glory of God. Because we are God's people according to his mercy through Christ. But while we're here in the body, we must continue to war against the desires of the flesh. Last point then, and well, this is the shortest point. God's will, sorry, God will fulfill his purpose of redemption for his glory. Right? Verses 8 and 9, I'm going to reread those so we get back into it. So the Lord dispersed them over the, from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building that city. Therefore, its name is called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of all the earth, and from there the Lord dispersed them over the face of all the earth. Remember at the beginning, I said kind of, is not what I was expecting to find when I was studying and reading this, but I think it's there. God's intent to dispersing humanity across the face of the earth. It was his intent. He wanted that, right? I want to focus finally on how God is glorified through that. We just said, you know, what was God's command to Adam and Eve first and then to Noah and his family? To disperse, to fill the earth, multiply, and prosper it to the glory of God. This was God's will, his desire, his intention all along. And to do this, whether you obey or not, he will have his way. And that was his desire, and he was going to have his way. And he still does. You see, God's desire was, was not just for one people in one language to glorify him. He knows the beauty of diversity, the kaleidoscope of variety, the beauty of people of different color, different ethnicities, different nations, different lands, different ways of thinking, different customs, different cuisine, different languages different dialects of sound, different customs, different gifts of service, different talents and abilities, different music, different temperaments, all united under the banner of Christ. 
glorifying God together, displaying the beautiful prism of his glory as a diamond with his many facets, continually, continually unveiling a different aspect of God, teaching one another about him and showing one another his glory from a different view. Oh, the beauty and majesty and mystery of God that he would display his beauty through the diversity of his image bearers. We see a snapshot of, this, of the glorious culmination of these peoples from all places worshiping and glorifying him in Revelation. John writes, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you made them a kingdom of priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. A few chapters later, he says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Can you picture it? Isn't that glorious? So church, to conclude, God is sovereign. He is king. And he's beautiful. He's a beautiful king. His ways are all good and only good. Only his kingdom, not ours, will endure, and he will receive glory. So we must trust as his image bearers. So so we must, as his image bearers, magnify him through diversity. Love the nations. And always to the glory of God, not just for diversity's sake. And at the same time, church, don't miss this, we must condemn those who, like the builders of Babel, seek to build their own kingdoms and glorify their own ways above others and above God, discriminating discriminating based on their own self-seeking ways, thinking themselves wiser than the creator who created all the beautiful facets of humanity. And if I'm not being explicit enough, particularly because it's kind of a hot-button issue in our society. I want to be clear from the pulpit that racism is evil. Thinking some race or, or people superior to, or superior to another is evil. Thinking that one people or race is an enemy of God because they are of that people or race, that's evil. And um, we, should be, we should strongly condemn that whenever we see it. Because we are the children of God as people from every nation and tribe and tongue. And if you remember how beautiful, if you've seen, it's going to be beautiful. And they are of value, those people, from all different places and tribes and tongues and nations and colors and ethnicities. So remember, we too were enemies of God. It is he who saves. He who attributes value and worth. He who sanctifies. It is he who gives life. And it is he who deserves all the glory and honor 
and worship and adoration and praise. It is he who is sovereign and he will accomplish all he pleases. And all this he will accomplish whether people obey him or not, as we've seen in this story. He will establish his throne of justice and mercy. He will reign in his kingdom of love and glory. He will and has accomplished the redemption of his people from all nations, from all the ends of the earth, from all time, to glorify him for all time. Not our kingdom, but his. Praise God for who he is. And praise him for the love he has lavished on us, us, his enemies, that we should be called the children of God. As John says, for that is what we are, children of the king. Let's pray. Father, may you be glorified. Here in this time right now, in our worship of you, of you and through song and through the Lord's Supper after it. But as we go from here, that we might worship you only in our actions, in our words, yes, but in our private thoughts, in the intentions of our heart, in the kingdoms that we build that sometimes we don't even know we're building. I ask that your spirit reveal that to us that we might correct that course, that we might build the kingdom of God, glorify and magnify him and find our joy and peace and, and value in Christ alone. For living for Christ is gain and dying for Christ is gain. Father, you will have your way and your kingdom will reign. And I praise you for that. May you remind us of that when the clouds get dark. That you are God alone. You sit on your throne. It's your kingdom. You're in control. You loved us and purchased us. You are not, we are not out of your grip. We will forever continue with you because of what you've done. May that be the joy in our lives. May that be our comfort and peace beyond understanding and that we can go out from here and proclaim the glory of God in his kingdom. We love you, Father. It's in your precious and wonderful holy name.